This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We want to get right to the Business Week agenda. Gina Martin-Adams with us, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's on the phone in New Jersey. Dave Wilson with us, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News on the remote access from New Jersey. So, Gina, yep, it's a sell-off. It feels like a, a bit of a big one or bigger than we've seen in some time, but it does feel kind of orderly. How do you see it? Uh, I see it as a continuation of what we've been in since sep- September 1st, really, and that was the day when tech stocks started to cede leadership to the rest of the index. Um, tech stocks no longer behaving defensively, which is a key characteristic change from where we were in the March to September bounce, when anytime you had COVID spikes or fears about economic um, weakness emerging, you know, pretty much any risk could emerge and tech stocks powered through it or, or at least behave somewhat defensively. That's been the very big difference since September 1st is tech stocks are underperforming. Also, utility stocks have been outperforming since that time, which is indicative of a market that's at least rotating. And I think over the last couple of days, we've had more pressure on tech stocks emerge, partly because third quarter earnings season is expected to be the worst earnings season for tech of the year. And also there's a lot of regulatory pressures starting to sort of uh, cloud over this space, which has really been the darling of the S&P 500 for most of this year. Well, Dave, I feel like what's going on beneath the surface may be different with tech kind of falling behind seeding ground to sectors like utilities. But the reason it seems is kind of the same, right? The virus, rising cases, concerns about uh, lockdown, what it's going to do to the economy. So I guess my question is, if we've been here before, how long could the selling pressure really last? Yeah, that, that, that does become an open question. But, you know, you kind of have to go beyond the effects of the virus and just take a good look at earnings. I mean, I came across this uh, chart on Twitter, uh, which is attributed to Goldman Sachs. If you look at the companies that have been beating analyst estimates, on average, they've fallen four-tenths of a percentage point more than the S&P 500 the first day after the numbers come out. So, in other words, they don't get rewarded for doing relatively well. And we know from our own data that more than 80% of the companies in the S&P 500 that have reported so far have been beating estimates. But then turn it on its head. When they come up short, you're talking about an average decline. This is relative to the S&P 500 of 6.6 percentage points. So, in other Mm -hmm. words, that's how much worse they do. And, you know, if you look back over... uh, in the last 15 years or so, on average, it's been more like two points. So, yeah. you know, it's a very different environment right now. And companies really can't do anything right when it comes to reporting earnings, for so it seems. <laughs> it's hard to be a company in this environment. So, Gina, come on in, though. I do feel like it's ultimately, it's virus, virus, virus. And as we watch what's going on in Europe, you know, that is the expectation that that's what's going to happen here in the U.S., you know, ultimately. And it just means more pressure on our, you know, our economy. And that's not a great backdrop for companies. Yeah, it is. I, I, I just, I don't want to be dismissive of this mm-hmm. notion that it's all about the virus, but I do think it's more than just the virus. I mean, the, the election is certainly playing into this as well. We wrote a lot about healthcare this week. Healthcare stocks are actually trading at their biggest discount relative to the S&P 500 that they've traded at since 2009. 
So you've got to go all the way back to the, the midst of the last recession to find healthcare stocks this discounted in relative terms. You would think if it was all about the virus, then people would be flocking to healthcare, right? They would be yeah, running to right. the companies that might be able to help solve this underlying weakness. Um, but instead, they're not. So that tells me that some of this is about policy and about fear of what's going to happen post-election. Right. I think that's also what's happening to tech. People should be flocking to tech stocks as relative safety plays if this were all about the virus. Well, okay. And instead, it's about a little bit of loss of economic momentum and the lack of fiscal policy support right. in combination with that economic momentum loss. So I think it's a broader story than just the fact that the virus has escalated recently. That's absolutely a contributing factor, so I don't want to dismiss it altogether. Right, but I right. do think there's more really weighing on stocks right now than just the virus. Well, Gina, riddle me this. Speaking of a broader story, it seems pretty confined to equities. Yes, we have a really ugly equity sell-off today. The VIX is at the highest since June. But then you look for your traditional safe haven bids, gold down, treasuries flat. I yep. mean, why? Why? <laughs> Uh, you know, again, because equities is where tech lives, mm. right? Um, this is not a story necessarily of a broad flight out of risk in global assets. This is a story partially of the fact that you're going through a leadership rotation. Dave was citing you all those wonderful statistics about what is happening with earnings season. We run similar statistics in our team, and one of the things that we found earlier this week is as despite the fact that tech stocks, growth stocks, you know, most stocks are not getting rewarded for beats, the one group that is is value stocks. So you're starting to see some internal rotation. Now, the problem is right. when stocks are selling off and tech is selling off, it looks really, really awful for the broad mm -hmm. S&P 500. That's not the situation. It's a lot of the weight, right? <laughs> that's what's new. All right. Going to leave it there. And it's also interesting to see if it really was everybody running for the exits. I mean, gold is actually down today, down about 1.6%. Uh, Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Super smart. Love what she has to say. Dave Wilson, uh, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Wednesday. Carol Masser along with Kaylee Lines. And Kaylee, we just went through some of the headlines. We see Europe... Uh, looking to kind of shut down their continent again as the virus comes roaring back. Uh, the U.S. also watching those cases and hospitalizations climb. Right now, there are 44 million cases of COVID-19 uh, around the world with deaths exceeding 1.16 million. So our next guest we talked to in early March, we were still in studio before the shutdown, but they're someone who really understands what's going in uh, on in the world of healthcare and really the supply chain. Yeah, because that, as we know, is so critical as we see hospitalizations ride. Really, the question being, are we more equipped this time around? So let's bring him in now, Michael Kyer. He's president of Premier, which is a this healthcare improvement company. It has an alliance of more than 4,000 U.S. hospitals and health systems, approximately 175,000 other providers and organizations, helps this them meeting. with just data, analytics, the supply chain. So, Mike, uh, you're on the phone with us from Dallas. Thank you for joining us. How equipped are we? to handle this the second time around. Hey, Carol, Kaylee, first, let me just say thanks for having me. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, from uh, a positive standpoint, obviously with the initial surge, we were able to stand up additional production of very, very critical PPE. So Premier and a number, 16 of our healthcare systems actually made an investment in a, in a domestic manufacturer of N95 face masks, and we continued to make investments in other uh, very vital PPE to protect our healthcare workers. Having said all that, 
Uh, we are now facing, you know, obviously this additional surge, uh, and we are worried about a couple of very critical products to include exam gloves. So, you know, I guess from a, a global demand standpoint over the last five or six months, uh, there's been a significant, uh, you know, surge or interest on, on behalf of other countries that historically didn't necessarily use the same kind of exam gloves that we use. Uh, but now there, there seems to be a big pull, and, and it's creating a, a ton of uh, – a demand on a on a pretty um, fragile supply chain that exists. Well, that you know, so forgive me. Good for your business, but obviously, it's a sign. If you're seeing a ton of demand, it's a sign of the world just kind of getting ready for either what's already coming at them or what they expect will come at them, whether it's a second or third wave of COVID-19. What specifically are you seeing in terms of specific demand around the globe, Mike? Yeah, so we're, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, uh, almost in some cases we're seeing the double of demand for the utilization of these of these gloves. And so, uh, it, you know, from our standpoint, it's, it's not a good thing, right, because it, it means that we, we have a supply chain that's not, you know, obviously used to actually providing that level of uh, product. So we've got to continue to be incredibly innovative and creative uh, looking, you know, at, you know, are there different gloves that we can potentially leverage that include, you know, gloves that don't necessarily use the, the nitrile product that most of our exam gloves are made of today, but maybe going back and using more latex and vinyl. But what, but what I mean is, uh, where are you seeing demand specifically? I think we're all trying to figure out, is it Europe specifically? Oh, That's the, I'm trying yeah. to get an idea in terms of the virus surge. Yeah, yeah. So thank you very much. So for sure, definitely Europe. Uh, we're seeing more utilization, obviously, in, in uh, obviously, Southeast Asia, but we're also seeing here domestically. So historically, you know, our acute centers uh, used a lot of the exam gloves, but now obviously a lot of the non-acute set- settings for healthcare are, are also hmm. utilizing that demand. And then, of course, we're seeing more utilization, you know, d- down in uh, South America as well. Mike, do you see the same kind of panic as we saw at the beginning of this pandemic, everyone rushing to get their hands on a mask, on gloves, uh, do you see that happening this time? I don't see the same amount of panic because, you know, obviously I think the federal government, the state governments, uh, a lot of our healthcare providers have been building out stockpiles, obviously, of this critical PPE. So we don't see that sort of that same broad scale panic, uh, but we do see it in, you know, very specific areas like I, I just mentioned with exam gloves where mm-hmm. there, you know, is obviously higher demand, but no, um, to answer your question very specifically, not the same level of panic. Uh, I want to talk about a group of people that doesn't seem too panic about the caseload. The White House saying, you know, it's just due to more testing. It's just due to more testing. But the fact that we're seeing hospitalizations pick up may suggest otherwise. With your lens into the healthcare system, what's what's your view on that? Yeah, so um, I was actually on the phone with a number of our providers in Pennsylvania and Michigan over the last 48 hours. There is, obviously, uh, we are seeing a surge, obviously, in in positive tests. We are seeing an increase in hospitalization. Uh, So, obviously, we've got to just make sure that, uh, from a premier standpoint, we've got to make sure that those healthcare systems have the products that they need to protect their, their frontline caregivers to treat these patients. So, you know, Mike, I do wonder, what are your expectations about demand uh, and what we're going to need as a world when it comes to PPE over the next few months? 
Yeah, I think that we've, we've got to obviously monitor it very, very closely. I, I think to, to answer your question, um, we've got to do a better job using technology uh, to really identify, you know, where we need the PPE at the right time. Because um, right now, it's, everybody is building out all these stockpiles uh, for what they're not sure of what the potential demand might be. Uh, it's just creating an incredible amount of stress on the on the uh, on the supply chain. So the more technology enablement we can have to forecast the demand that needs to be utilized. Um, I think the the more effective we're going to be to to ensure that we can get all the right PPE to our, our our caregivers on the front line. Mike, where are the biggest potential choke points? Yeah, I would tell you right now, um, it's just getting the communication organized between the feds, the states, uh, the health systems themselves, and 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 to the uh, the non-acute providers. You know, some states have mandates in terms of what stockpiles that they each need to have. Um, and it just, it's just creating, a, again, a lot of burden on it. So, uh, you know, it's just a matter of let's get that organized. And then when you say what are the cho- choke points, I think the choke points are, you know, we've got a, a, an historic dependence, you know, on China and other Southeast Asian countries, uh, you know, for the production of these products. And, and we've got to continue just to, to do as what Premier's been doing, which is diversify the, the base of manufacturing move it into more, you know, other, uh, you know, uh, Southeast Asian countries and move production, you know, to more domestic locations as well. How likely is that? I'm curious about that because I was curious about what the supply chain is. And I think that's something that came um, very much to the forefront during the early months of COVID-19 here in the United States that we were reliant on, in many ways, China for the equipment we needed to get through the virus. Yeah, so as it relates to PPE... The way I describe it is when we did our partnership with Prestige Ameritech, because they already had production lines uh, stood up and because they already had, you know, a supply chain of understanding where the raw materials were coming from, it took us, you know, probably 60 to 90 days to stand up, you know, a significant additional production. So if the facilities are already up and running, they already have a hardened supply chain, then, you know, it's, it's a matter of a couple a couple of months, you know, to stand up significant additional production. If you're in an ancillary industry, meaning you don't necessarily produce a mask, but maybe you produce diapers and they use the same raw materials, you know, you've got to then get the machinery and, and get that up and running. And that I always characterize that as a matter of months. That's five, mm. six, you know, seven months. Not easy. If you're yeah. starting from scratch, mm. yeah, and if you're starting from scratch, it, it could be, you know, up to, a year or two specifically wow. for pharmaceuticals where we still have that big issue of our dependence on, on China. Mike, I want to ask you about the vaccine because it's one thing to create the vaccine. It's another to make enough of it and get it to enough people. What kind of challenges do we face in the deployment process? No, I heard you, you guys talking a little bit about the Moderna, the Moderna product as well as the Pfizer product. And uh, so a couple of things. First, all 50 states were actually asked to submit, you know, sort of their plans to HHS by October 16th. They're going through all of uh, those responses. Uh, we have been hearing a lot of chatter, obviously, around the needs for additional syringes and needles, dry ice and freezers. And then to answer your question, the complexity is the following. Each of these products 
uh, require different storage temperatures. So Moderna can, you know, can be stored at negative 20 degrees, but it's not tested to be stored at negative 7 degrees mm-hmm. and negative 70 degrees. And Pfizer you, right. is required to store it at negative 70 and not negative 20. So, so no consistency. Just, you know, if, if no consistency. And if you're a care provider, this is all brand new to you. So, you know, you don't have a lot of the capabilities to actually, you know, store the product, let right. alone store multiple versions of a, of a vaccine. We know it's complicated, Mike. You're right in the middle of it. Mel- Mike Alkire, he's president of Premier, joining us on the phone uh, from Dallas. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, yeah, with a headline like this, you're going to want to stop dead in your tracks, just take it all in, because this story in the magazine this week, it's about how no one can handle QAnon like the global army of K-pop superfans. This story is a killer. It is by Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carvel, and she joins us on the phone in New York City. Also with us is Bloomberg Business Week uh, editor of the magazine, Joel Weber, on the phone in Brooklyn. Man, this is incredible, Joel. Yeah, and, and just props for Olivia for, for seeing it through. Um, it's a story about K-pop stands. If you don't know what stands are, it's the super fans. Um, and K-pop has legions of them, and we really got a sense of what they're capable of over the summer when Trump's Tulsa rally ended up basically being, um, for as far as we know, basically taken over by super fans who, who helped buy a bunch of tickets and then didn't show up. And it was this glimpse into the power of their fandom. Of the um, stan. Of the stan. And, you know, it's another thing also that, you know, if you follow K-pop before, and especially on the commercial side, you can see what influence like bands like BTS have when they let their preferences know about brands. It immediately moves the needles for brands. So Olivia dug into this for us, and Olivia, like, why is this so relevant, like, right now at this day and age, with uh, an you know an election just around the corner? Yeah, I, I felt like researching this story. I had to learn a whole new language: K-pop <laughs> and stands and BTS and Army, and you know, there's so many layers to the story that was just fascinating as I was researching it. And I think you're right, Joel, that like over summer, we we really saw the K-pop stands kind of, we saw the full force of just how powerful they can be at mobilizing and rallying online. And they've become such a significant force in the US, you know, politically speaking, that you've got political consultants actually taking notice of K-pop fans now. There were some democratic grassroots organizations reaching out with Biden for K-pop memes after that that Tulsa rally. And if you'd read the story, you'll see that the you know the reaction they got from the K-pop fans wasn't exactly exactly warm. They responded with comments like "Hell to the no" and "We don't <laughs> like you either." So Hard no. Kind of interesting, yeah. That these guys are. You know, they're not a monolith, um, they're leaderless. It's hard to harness them from any any side of the political spectrum. But there's a deep connection with African-American music culture because right. the genre borrows liber- liberally from them. So there was, you know, that strong connection with Black Lives Matter, which we saw earlier in the summer. Right. Olivia, I find it so interesting that K-pop, in theory, is supposed to be unpolitical. Band members are told, you know, don't wade into politics, but it really has, at least for the fan base, become political. Yeah, and we actually saw BTS 
tweet out support for the Black Lives Matter movement earlier in June. And I think that's largely because they do borrow so much of African-American, you know, in the music culture with the way Mm. they dress, the way the songs sound, the way they sing. And when BTS waded into Black Lives Matter, which was seen as a political movement, they also donated a million dollars to Black Lives Matter charities. That's when the fandom really ramped up and started to... um, you know, in one day, they raised a million dollars to match BTS's donation. So you can see just wow. your sheer force online to kind of hijack white supremacist hashtags <laughs> and also push out the message for BLM. And let, let's talk more also just about the commercial side of this. The, I love there's a reference to Downey uh, <laughs> and, and sort of a BTS member uh, commenting on his preference of Downey. And what happened when that, when, when that went down? Yeah. That was Jungkook. So he commented on how he used the downy fabric softener in the adorable scent. And within a day, they sold out of a two-month global supply of this particular fabric softener. I've heard examples of, like, another one of the band members, V, he was photographed holding a book in the airport, and it sold out online. Um, Or they, they... but was sponsored by Hyundai Palisade and the SUV was on back order for months. So the buying power, the commercial power of ARMY, which is what the BTS fans are called, is just unparalleled. Yeah, I feel like this story is about just a reminder, especially in a week where big tech and the CEOs are hauled before Congress or before the Senate mm-hmm. specifically and, you know, being kind of questioned, I think, for their might. It just shows you what can be done uh, online, the power of this. What's, what's kind of your key takeaway from, from this and reporting this story out? I think my key takeaway is really the fact that when, when you look at what's going on online right now and you look at the rise of these alt-right groups, these conspiracy theorists like QAnon, is that you speak to the experts who cover these groups and really the only ones who can go up against or beat a group like QAnon at its own game is K-pop fans mm-hmm. with you know the, mm-hmm. the sheer volume, the number of them online and the fact that they're so digitally savvy and cheeky and creative with how they you know, engage in meme warfare or takedowns of particular hashtags, whether it's QAnon or White Lives Matter. You know, we've seen them do this time and time again over summer. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next week and even after the election as we see the, the rise of QAnon and K-pop kind of trying to, um, to, to filter that out or, or trying to even it out um, by, you know, taking over their hashtags or, or right. getting involved to demobilize them. Yeah, there's like this noble side that I find really interesting to this of like willing to wade into certain causes, but also kind of be willing to rise above the the politics of it. And, you know, the other significant thing here, I think, Olivia, that I wouldn't mind your, your brain on is where is the army there? You know, like it's not like it's just in South Korea, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like such a common misconception of who BTS fans are or who K-pop members are. And we, we heard earlier this year when they, you know, after the Trump rally in Tulsa on mainstream media, people were saying things like this is fans of the group K-pop, which was just all kinds of wrong. And, and you also heard, um, <laughs> you know, stories about how these are all screaming Asian teenagers based in South Korea. And that's a totally inaccurate representation of this fandom. Millions of these fans are based here in the U.S. They're over the age of 30, and many of them are African-American or from underrepresented minorities. Hugely diverse, 
geography-wise and also cultural-wise. Yeah, I'm thinking, Joel, maybe you're one of these stands. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> a secret stand. So much bigger than me. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's bigger than any of us. You know, and it's this quiet force that can actually uh. take on misinformation and conspiracy theories. It's incredible. Yeah. It is and an I incredible red line, which was like trolling for a good cause because they are online trolls, but they're yeah. doing it for, for good reasons, which isn't what we've really seen before. Right. Yeah. Got to say, it's a very timely conversation. It's a great read. Olivia, thank you so much. Olivia Carvel, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. And our thanks to Jill Weber, of course, editor of the magazine. Check that story out online and in the magazine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. It is Bloomberg Business Week. It is Wednesday. I'm Carol Master along with Kaylee Lines of Bloomberg News and Bloomberg TV. And Kaylee, I know you've been watching this. You've been reporting on TV. I know you've been watching the big tech names. I'm talking about Facebook, Twitter, and Alphabet because their CEOs went before the Senate Commerce Committee today. Went before the Senate Commerce Committee and got a grilling, Carol. Of course, this is all related to Section 230. It's this one little part of the Communications Decency Act, but 26 words can pack a lot of punch. And this basically is the rule that allows allows them to do what they do when it comes to content and information. And the senators are saying, we might want to change this. Yeah, this is a really important discussion that we're having right now. Some say it's a little bit of an old law and that we need to kind of update it. Let's get to our next guest because she has something to say about it. She is former CEO of Russia's largest e-commerce site, uh, oversaw global operations at Priceline, and she is the author of Trampled by Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It. She's also former COO at Compass. Uh, Mayel Gavay is back with us. Delighted to have her here. She joins us on the phone in New York City. Mayel, good to have you back with us. Quite a day. Tech, big tech, uh, front and center. What do you make uh, of what's going on right now in Congress? Um, first of all, thanks for having me back. Yeah. And then I think I think today was unfortunately a lot of posturing, and it was a very political agenda. As you mentioned, it was supposed to be about Section 230, and if you actually calculate the number of minutes spent talking about Section 230, they were <laughs> almost non-existent. And so it's, well, it's a little sad. Well, Mayal, I feel like that's been the story of big tech regulation. There's so much talk about it. It's this constant overhang. And then it never really happens. <laughs> yes, pretty much so. I think in general, the context is very unfavorable. I think on one hand, it's really good that we have uh, that we're having this conversation. I think it's great. Uh, that people who have been democratically elected pay attention to what is really one of the biggest societal topics right now. But at the same time, um, the way these hearings are structured, where you have several CEOs that, uh, who are sat virtually next to each other, um, makes it impossible to really go deep into any of these companies. Then on top of that, you have the uh, currently happening highly contested U.S. presidential election that makes the whole environment extremely political. And then you add on top of that uh, a sprinkle of coronavirus and like the raging accelerating pandemic. Right. Um, and so it just makes it really, really difficult right. to actually come to some kind of solution during this hearing. My, my L, so... First of all, and as you know, I, and our, our Emily Chang of Bloomberg Tech, she I heard her on radio earlier with David West, and she said, you know, this 
these hearings were a lot about politics, you know, and that Republicans were kind of getting out there that there's anti-Republican bias on social media. When you look at social media and you think about Section 230, I mean, what are the things that you think do need to be changed? I mean, that's a 1996 law. Emily mentioned, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was a teenager when this was created. A lot of things have changed. What needs to be adjusted here? A a few things, but first I want to just comment on what you say, which is Republicans are constantly saying that social media are abusing their power to censor conservatives. There's actually no data that Mm -hmm. proves that. Mm -hmm. There are some data points uh, here and there, but they're anecdotal. There's not an actual serious research that proves that point, and the only two researchers that I have ever found one by The Economist in 2019, and the other one uh, um, conducted by a media watchdog called Media Matters, have actually found no evidence whatsoever of ideological bias from both Facebook and Google. So I think we have to start with that, which mm-hmm. is there is no fact that actually proves the bias that the Republicans are talking about. If they could prove it, that would be awesome. But for now, it's not a fact, it's an opinion. Uh, now, <laughs> in terms of... But that's uh, important, and that's important, yeah. because I do think we're trying to really assess the, you know, there's so much quantity, uh, or there's so much uh, material that gets out there on social media, you do you do wonder, and I know there's more policing being done, but you do wonder, is there any kind of bias that we're seeing? Um, okay, so what do you think now needs to be done to maybe make it better? Yeah, so I think it's it's actually quite a complex question. And, and to be fair to senators, this is also, I, I think, the reason why the hearings are not leading to, like, here we are, here are the, here's the list of solutions. Um, I think that the, 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 first, the first problem is that um, we don't really know what we're talking about. And what I mean by that is there is no transparency about Currently, what are these company? Uh, what are these companies doing? And it, it's, it is actually really hard to regulate anything if you don't know what is actually happening. So when Facebook or Google, because we don't talk enough about Google and YouTube, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube do something, uh, we're very lucky when they talk to us about it. And so I think the first thing, even before touching Section 230. Would be to would be to legislate around the transparency that these companies should be observing. Then the second thing that we we should have uh, a conversation about and potentially some kind of legislation about is this question of freedom of reach versus freedom of speech. I think hmm. in the U.S., given the historical, um, given the past. Uh, around free speech, I think it's always going to be really, really hard to regulate anything around free speech. But I think saying to these companies, like, you cannot uh, continue to do um, the micro-targeting that you're doing, the way you're doing it, the amplification that you're doing through your recommendation algorithm, um, that is definitely something that the regulator should actually could actually spend some time on and and potentially uh, clarify and standardize for more fairness and more transparency again. 
Mayel, I knew when we kicked off this conversation, I already said we're not going to have enough time. I was thinking that with you. So come back soon. I know this is going to be an issue that we're going to be talking about a lot. Um, really appreciate your time, as always. Mayel uh, Gave, author of Trampled by Unicorns. She is a tech executive entrepreneur. Really, really impressive. Uh, just commenting on those hearings today. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. And right now my co-host Kaylee Lines is just kind of dancing away. You know, you got to loosen it up a little bit. <laughs> when that Britney Spears hits, that's, I just, I can't help myself. <laughs> uh, that's what I need Dave Wilson to play for Chart of the Day. I could guess every one of her songs. I'll have to give him some pointers on that one. <laughs> um, so delighted to have with us, I'm guessing she might have been dancing too, uh, Hillary Kramer, President and Chief Investment Officer at A&G Capital Research, author of Game Changer Investing, How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. She is back with us. She is on the phone in New Jersey, maybe dancing or maybe cringing a little bit because we're seeing the selling. I don't know. What's your take on this uh, market day here, Hillary? Carol, it's the perfect storm. There's Mm. just too much uncertainty out there. And I think on top of, of course, that COVID-19 continuing to hit, you know, the numbers higher and higher in hospitalizations, really so much has to do with the taxes and these long-term capital gains that right now Mm. are at 20%. Think about the millions of people, institutional and individual, who have made so much money, and if they can sell now, right, they get taxed at 20%. But if Biden is elected, mm-hmm. there isn't going to be any more capital gains tax. It's going to be excluded. It's going to be part of ordinary income, and ordinary income taxes could go up. And we have Wall Street really worried about that. Right. And, of course, we know the old story, Carol, the algorithmic trading models, they start right. to unwind. Mm-hmm. And then all the investors who've been watching and being day trading because they're home all these months start to get really nervous and, uh, and jump out. And then one other point that I think is really important, though, the street is waiting on Amazon. It's probably the most important mm. company to, to report this week because we're gonna, we need to see what the spending on cloud computing is. You know, and it's yeah. also a test for consumer demand. And you know, there'll be a lot of comparisons to how uh, Microsoft did. And Microsoft was just too weak. But uh, there's a total rotation out of big tech. And mm-hmm. uh, it's time. Uh, the big trend now is to, is to be in those boring companies like Genuine Parts and Old Republic Insurance. <laughs> Well, Hillary, you bring up tech, so let's talk about it. We have a lot of mega caps reporting after the bell tomorrow, and we've seen a lot of beats this earnings season. More than 80% of companies are beating earnings per share estimates. Very few are getting rewarded. You just get punished if you miss. Explain that dynamic to me. So much of the technology is just too expensive. Let's take Mm -hmm. Microsoft. Okay, so guidance is slightly below estimates. Okay, it's trading, Microsoft trades at 30 times earning, you know, as a valuation analyst. It's not sustainable for a mega cap tech giant. 
that also, so many of these companies, including Amazon, everyone thinks of them as new tech, but they're serving mature industries with web services. The cloud is web services. You know, and also web services are starting to get commoditized here. And in terms of companies like Apple, well, there isn't much excitement there anyway because that'll be packed into the next quarter. And, of course, so much of the selling was brought forward. But why is big tech being published, being punished? Everyone is realizing that you just have to look at the charts and, and, and everyone's just getting ready and needs that dividend yield. They want income. They're getting ready for, you know, what could really be a slaughter in NASDAQ that we haven't seen since 2000. So wait a minute, though, Hillary. It's different from 2000 in that, and we've said this, you know, these aren't companies that don't have revenues and aren't big businesses, but you're saying it's a maturing industry. I thought what you said about Amazon, that, you know, they're serving mature industries with cloud, and there's also a lot more competition when it comes to cloud. So it's not like these are companies that all of a sudden are going to go bankrupt and be no more. It's just, what, valuation? It's a valuation call? It's, it's valuation. And okay. the reason I said mature industries, my point there, Carol, is that they're, they're serving mature companies. They're not serving, like, big, hot, new tech, you know, right. new world companies. Uh, we'll just take a look at SAP, which is the Microsoft of Germany, and it's important to look at that. What, what, what did we see? The market cap mm-hmm. went from about $190 billion to, you know, $140 billion. I mean, these companies can really fall big, and, and then companies that do well that are considered COVID-proof, like Tupperware, you know, has a day, and it's up 34% in one day, TUP, right? So, so that's what's really going on here, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I say you really can see the fall, and that's that's why I bring up a company like SAP. Of course, it's not apples to apples completely, but but that thing. And now again, you know, today it was down right. another five percent. But there yeah. are great companies to buy, and you know that I always see you know the silver lining. And there are companies that are undervalued out there. You know, sounds like she's setting us up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give us some names, Hillary. Oh, I'd love to. Genuine parts. GPC. Genuine Parts has a 3.5% dividend yield, and it's automotive parts um, and, and supplies. And it's, it is a COVID stock. You know, I know, Carol, you're absolutely right. People are buying new cars. You see lots of those temporary license plates out there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, people aren't flying. They're driving. And the more they drive, you know, the more they have to maintain those cars. I like, as I said, Old Republic. That's an insurance company. It's title insurance as well as some like funky other insurance businesses like Aerospace. You get a 5.2% dividend yield. Wow. The stock is $16, and it's selling at a discount. It could be a $21 stock. You know, you're not going to get a double like, like we have in the last year in Apple, but you're going to see some real opportunities here. And a stock that I've talked about before that I've always liked is Ingredion. That's another one. Those are your sugars and your starches, and, and it dropped somewhat because of concern about the institutional restaurant business. But uh, that's the basis of everything from chewing gum to cosmetics are these starches and these these basic industrial these basic products but we're mm-hmm. going to see a lot of buying in Hormel, HRL. Mm-hmm. People want Skippy and they want, uh, they think everyone's going to be eating spam, even though they won't be. Right. <laughs> you know, and then the other thing I, you know, that I think is really important to realize is that every, no one really learns their lesson. I think it's important to, to bring up a Boston beer, you know, Sam, S A M, Samuel Adams, yep. because that stock went from $300 
to 1,063 since March, and that's because of what? Hard seltzer, but that's getting to be a very crowded, crowded, you know, um, category of White Claw competing. Right, there's lots. There's so many brands. Oh, it's incredible, you know, Angry Orchard Hard, you know, mm-hmm. cider. That's not going to make a company, you know, like Samuel Adams be able to sustain a stock like that. It's a great company. Truly Seltzer is wonderful, but, but so is competitor White Claw. Right. It's so. interesting. Boston Beer up 180%, so it's getting a little lofty, to say the least. <laughs> hey, Hillary, we've got to run. Always fun to talk names with you. Stay safe. Hillary Kramer, President and CIO at A&G Capital Research, uh, joining us on the phone in New Jersey. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.